This morning we're going to actually be reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And it says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can take a seat. Thanks, Kim. All right. Well, good morning again, everybody. Um, If I don't know you, my name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor teaching pastor here for Redemption Peoria. Uh, We say every week Redemption Church is one church with nine different congregations throughout the state of Arizona. Each one of those congregations is elder-led and lead pastor-led, and so that's my role here. I'm one of the elders as well with four other men who lead here. Um, So I see a lot of, I saw more even in first service, but I'm assuming if they went to first service, that's because they had to get home real quick. A lot of jerseys. Football's back, y'all. I'm just saying. Let's just throw it out there. Super jacked. Uh, Even singing about Zion, I'm thinking, I know football will be there. Um, Watching it, of course, not playing it. Um, Anyway, super excited about that. I want to pray for our time. Uh, Before I do, though, I just want to, this is just a kind of a cultural statement that I I got excited about yesterday. Yesterday, Myself and my family were at the Bates house celebrating uh, Remy being adopted by the Bates, which is really, really cool. Yeah. Um, And while we were there, I was in a conversation with somebody and it struck me because in the conversation I was talking with them and they were like, yeah, you know, so we, we want to adopt, you know, but we love, we see what Peoria is doing and Redemption Church at large is doing, but we don't, we don't want to do it just because everyone else is doing it. Right. And that comment struck me as like, you actually feel peer pressure to go after the orphan. And it's so funny because I was thinking to myself, if there's anything we're going to peer pressure people into and I'm okay with legalism in, it's like going towards the orphan. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, I'm good with that. Like, if you feel like, man, I'm really not, everybody's helping the orphan and widow. I just, yeah, that's what we do here. I don't know what to tell you, right? So anyway, take that. I was super, I mean, just to even see all the mixed families and see what God is doing, how many like couples over and over, some of you, and even so many of you singles who've said, I can't adopt right now, but I can come alongside this couple or what. It's just legit. I mean, I love it. I love watching uh, the Lord move in that way. It's really, really cool to be a part of uh, God. I think God's call and us answering God's call together in that. So let me pray. Uh, The first word of our text this morning starts with afterwards. So that's going to require us going back a little bit, right? So I'm going to pray for us and then I'll I'll do some explaining. Father, thanks just for uh, the text. Um, Thanks for even last service, all that you did. And we pray, Spirit, in the same way uh, that you would uh, fill this room. Father, as you send your Spirit, uh, we pray that you'd give us faith through your Word. There's so many of us in this room who have an insane amount of questions. And, um, and just some of us who are just need faith. And we, we know and recognize that it comes through your Word. And so now we pray as we cover multiple chapters in it, uh, you would give us faith to be able to see uh, illuminate the scriptures well at this time. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I'm going to be honest with you up front. We are going to spend half our time unpacking the text and another half unpacking an idea that is in the book of Exodus but also finds its way in a text. And it is going to be a little bit heady this morning, um, but that's just the nature of the beast. So we'll, we'll cover it. I'll get to that point when I, when I do. So let's start with the first word, afterward. So if you haven't been with us, we've been going through the book of Exodus. And um, we're trying to go through this thing verse by verse, chapter by chapter. There are sections, obviously, where I'll summarize for us. And so that's what we're going to do. I'm just going to go through the uh, Exodus. We're going to do uh, five, six, and 
than half of seven this morning. As we go through it, I just want to encourage you, we're going to go through, I'll acknowledge some things, but then we'll zoom out and we'll look at this big picture. And you might not even be aware of the picture where we're coming from up to this point. So let me just give you kind of a, a heads up where we've been. Uh, So far, what we know is in the story of the Exodus, we have God and Pharaoh going back and forth. God wants to establish his kingdom here on earth. He continues to bring his people about. Pharaoh's pushing against that. Eventually, God kind of sends his champion, if you will, if you want to use some of that uh, language, right? He he sends his champion in Moses, where God saved his life, Moses' life. Actually, God used five women in the course of the story so far to save Moses' life. And so Moses ends up coming on the scene. He ends up moving away from Egypt, where he was raised, to this other land where he's a shepherd. He's amongst these people called the Midianites. And he's a shepherd there. God eventually calls him and says, hey, listen, you don't belong here with the Midianites. I want you to go back to Egypt because you're an Israelite. I want you to go back there and I want you, I want to use you to, to free my people from slavery in Egypt. God, or uh, Pharaoh wrestles with this. God continues to come back. There's a back and forth now between Moses and God. And then eventually Moses kind of compromises and says, well, let me at least use uh, my cousin here, my brother here, Aaron. And so uh, Aaron's ends up used. And so Aaron and Moses now are on their way to to Egypt. They walk into the palace. That's where we are. And they're about to tell Pharaoh everything the Lord has told them. Okay. So we're getting to the climax of our story here. Verse five says this afterward, Moses, after everything I just explained, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now you may kind of see that as like, well, yeah, Pharaoh's saying what is obvious, but you can even see a little bit of drawing out the same question that Moses asked before is the same question Pharaoh's asking. And I would contend exegetically, Pharaoh's asking it with a bit of a smug uh, posture uh, for a few reasons. One, we'll find Moses doesn't even answer, uh, respond back to Pharaoh in answering that. But two, um, he believes in his posture of who he is, he is God-like, right? And so he's kind of going, who's God? Like, who? Yeah. And then the second part that he says is, not only do I not know who this God is that you're talking about, no, you're not going anywhere, right? Those are the two things he says. So Moses is like, okay, let me try, please. Then they said, the God of uh, the Hebrews has sent, uh, uh, met with us. Please let us go three days into the journey into the wilderness that we may uh, sacrifice to the Lord, our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. Verse four, but the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their burden, their work? Go, uh, get back to your burdens. Verse five, and Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. So Pharaoh goes, listen, Moses, Aaron, why are you here? Obviously you guys got a lot of time. You're thinking about being free. Now I ne- we need to kind of stop here for a second. I need you to think of the mass amount of labor that is put in place here at Egypt. Okay. We're talking over a million people. Imagine for a second that all of the employees, right? Managers, cashiers, whoever it is of Walmart all came and said, Hey, we want some time off, right? Now do the math here. It's a three day journey out into the wilderness. That means it's another three day journey. And that's already six days. We're already talking a week off, not to mention commentators vary between that could be as short as three days or it could be up to two months of, of offering sacrifices. But let's be conservative. Let's just say it's three days. It's nine days total. Imagine for a second, the hit just our economy let alone Walmart would take if all of the employees of Walmart, Walmart shut down for nine 
days, okay? Some of you, first of all, as individuals, wouldn't know how to operate in society. But beyond all of that, the reality is our economy would go, what are we supposed to do, right? And all these other businesses would love it. But just think, here's Egypt. And listen, they're paying. They're pay- Walmart pays their employees. They may feel like slaves, but they're paying their employees, okay? This is not the case for the Egyptians to the Israelites. So all this labor, most of which is free, now just goes, we want nine days off. You know how, Pharaoh's like, do you know how much not, like nine days of, of being, like, we're not going to stop this labor. This is crazy. And he goes, you're being lazy. That's what, that's the problem, right? And so we continue on with the narrative. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people of their foreman. So he's talking to, to Moses and Aaron. You're lazy. And he goes, okay, I got a solution. And he begins to talk to the managers over the, the, the people who are over the slaves. Commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foreman. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it. For they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go out and offer sacrifices to our God. Verse 9. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So Pharaoh, very similar, if you remember in chapter 1, very similar to another Pharaoh, two Pharaohs ago, very similar to him, says, oh, there's pushback in the way I'm doing things? He suppresses all the more. So fine, we'll just give you more work. Make it more difficult. And so you're making these, these bricks, you're putting all these bricks together, or you take mud and straw to make these bricks. Now go get your own straw. We've been providing straw for you, but no more, right? Now there's something going on as well in this text that we need to acknowledge of the spiritual warfare because we get a little bit of insight in what that first Pharaoh did in chapter one, um, what we saw him do, actually it was the second Pharaoh, but we saw him do in chapter one. And listen to chapter one, verse 11. This is uh, um, really important to the way that we can understand what's going on. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. This sounds super similar. That's from chapter one, right? But listen to the next part. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. In chapter one, we get a little bit of detail as to exactly what's being built here. And here's why this is important. Uh, in chapter one, we, I, I tried to unpack these storehouses, those, these store cities. What they are are the, these big buildings. They're called store cities because they're not just like a little shed. They're gigantic, the size of this room, two or three times the size of this room, that would be attached to the temples of the Egyptians, these pagan gods. And the reason that these temples or these store cities storing all this food are so large, in some cases larger than the temples themselves is because they need a steady flow of offerings given to the pagan gods. There needs to be a steady flow. And what Pharaoh is doing in this moment is he's saying, and and I love how the NIV says, verse nine, make their work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. If you have the NIV, you see that Pharaoh goes, let's keep their attention. You're not going to the wilderness to offer sacrifices uh, to Yahweh. We're going to keep your attention and your work here to help the sacrifices continue to flow to our gods right? He's trying to keep their attention in this direction. And so there's this back and forth that we can see how that's playing out. Okay. Verse 10, it says this. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, and then they begin to say, okay, Pharaoh announced no more straw, go get your own straw. So that's what we have. And that's where we pick up in verse 12. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent saying, complete your work, your daily task each day. And, uh, as when there was straw. So do what you've done before, but now you don't have straw. Same amount. And the uh, foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmaster has set over them, were beaten and were asked, 
and asked, why have you not, why have you not done all your tasks of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? So there's all this chaos of going, you know, back and forth, make this, do this. And, and just kind of way to get your mind in the Egyptian mind. It's a little different than we understand our American workforce. We kind of think we can go into work, do our nine to five, punch in, punch out. That's not how the pharaohs, uh, or that's not how the Egyptians process work. You see this multiple times. If you see in verse uh, 13, complete your work, your daily tasks. You see this in verse 14, your task. Again, we're not going to read it here, but if you look down uh, at verse 19, it says this, uh, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily tasks each day. The, the Egyptians process work far more as like workload. So today you need to get this amount of done. When you're done, you're done. So you got a hundred bricks to make. So when asking them to do this, they mathematically equated, it should take about eight, 10, 12 hours to make this amount of bricks, a hundred bricks, let's say. So you got to make this hundred bricks. Well, now they're saying we still want the same amount of bricks, hundred bricks, but we want the work to be harder. So they're adding to the workload, which obviously inevitably means more time, right? So this is kind of how it's all calculated. They process things a little bit different in that way. Verse 20 then says this. They, uh, so they're out working. It's real tough. They met Moses and Aaron when we were waiting for them. As they came out from Pharaoh, they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge you, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and put a sword in their hand to kill us. So let's recap where we are. Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh and they say, hey, let our people go. God's doing this. Pharaoh says, no, make their work harder. So now all of the Israelites go out and they work really hard. And it's a little bit comical here. Moses and Aaron are kind of sitting in the AC of the Egyptian temples or wherever they are. They're just kicking it. And they see the languages, they come in, they're coming in, right? They're just dealing with Pharaoh, all the taskmasters. And imagine all the servants and slaves are coming in. They've been making bricks. So their hands are muddy. They're smelly. They've been working harder than they usually have. And it's all Moses and Aaron's fault, right? Because they're doing this. They go to, they see Moses and Aaron, they go, there they are, right? And they walk, you could just imagine how angry they are in this moment. And so they get the wrath from all of these people, the taskmasters and all these slaves and servants. And then Moses and Aaron then respond and go, but we did what we were supposed to do. And they go to the Lord. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to his people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Okay, so just stop. Moses' response is pretty familiar, which we'll get at in a little bit. He goes, God, I was obedient. You said you're going to set your people free. What's going on? Why have you allowed this to take place? It's pretty. The Lord responds, as he usually does. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. And then from this point, God begins to reiterate what he said to Moses. Remember who I am, Moses. I know the people are mad. I know the work has gotten worse. I know the situation has gotten worse. Remember who I am, Moses. I've got this, okay? And then at this point, we we have uh, Moses, as he's talked with the Lord about this, Moses spoke thus to the people. He says, uh, spoke thus to the people, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So God reminds Moses, hey, so remember our interaction? Pharaoh, tell the people, people get in trouble. People come back, yell at Moses. Moses goes to God, God, what are you doing? God says to Moses, tell the people this. He says, okay, goes back to tell the people this. Hey, listen, remember God's in charge, whatever. And they go, no, Moses, we're done. Our backs are broken. Our spirits are broken. The work's difficult. No, we're done. Stop. We're we're done with this whole conversation. And then verse 10 says this. So the Lord said to Moses, (laughs) so, so Moses is like, what's going on? And this is what God says to him. Go in and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel out of the land. 
I just find this so funny. God's like, uh-huh. Okay, well, let's do it again, right? And Moses like, maybe you don't understand what's going on right now, but he goes on. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Israel listen to me? For I am uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. God says, I'm doubling down. I know what I'm doing. I know you don't know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. We're okay. And then at this point, we get this weird from verses 14 all the way to verse 25, this section of genealogies, which a lot of times we don't know what to do with genealogies. And just at this point, I want us to understand the reason I believe God puts this here in scripture is there are many Moseses, many Aaron's who are kind of telling the story. You have to understand that the story of the Exodus comes out with the story of Genesis. Okay. So it's not like the people have this, this other story. It's they're living in this story real time. Okay. And so they get this account and when they get this account, there, there's a, a recognition of this is the certain Moses and Aaron. And that's exactly what scripture says based on the genealogies. Here's how, here's the, the two men that we're talking about. It says in verse 26, these are the Aaron uh, and Moses to whom the Lord said. Okay. That's what has it goes on. So let's skip down. To verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, So I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak uh, all that I command you and your brother Aaron, and tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of the land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though, I'm sorry, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. So just listen to how much God's in control there, if you can. Like, yes, I know Moses, go back to Pharaoh. And, and not only that, I know he's not going to listen. Not only that, he's not going to listen because I'm not going to let him listen. Now, we're going to unpack that in a minute, but that's there here in the text, okay? Um, so it's something we do got to deal with. So eventually, he goes back to Moses, or Moses goes back to Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron walk in. And if you weren't with us last week, this crazy event happened um, where Moses is talking with God. And Moses, very similar to the situation he is in now, goes, but I don't believe. And God says, that's okay, Moses. What are you holding in your hand? And he's holding a staff at the time. He says, drop the staff. And when he does, it turns into a snake. God says, pick up the snake, Moses. Moses picks it up, and it turns into a staff. And he says, at that moment, this is last, uh, last week, he says, in that moment, okay, cool. That's what we're going to do to Pharaoh. And so he says, remember what I did with that whole stake and staff thing? Go do that to Pharaoh now. So Moses and Aaron go, all right, all right, let's go show them what we're worth. Okay, and he goes in, and uh, well, let's find out. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourself by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. This is what we're talking about. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Now listen to verse 11. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and the magicians of Egypt also did the same by their secret arts. This is really weird, right? So Moses and Aaron think they have something in their back pocket. They go, oh yeah, you want to know how powerful God is? They drop their staff, and it turns into a a snake, right? Well, then Pharaoh goes... I got some, like, Harry Potter, he could do that too. So he brings them over, and then he drop, they drop their staffs, and they turn into snakes, right? And Pharaoh or Aaron are going, that's all we got. I don't know what else to do, okay? But, but as much as we believe this literally happened, which it did, God does something very symbolic here. And it's, it's beautiful in what he does, right? Because first, let's just acknowledge, there are very real dark forces in this world. As a believer who holds the scripture, we cannot deny there are demonic forces that can mimic the things of God. Absolutely. And so these secret arts may seem foreign to us. Many people who are raised in third world countries, they're not as foreign to, but we'll leave that where it lies. The reality is this is, this is true. This is here. There are these demonic forces that make the staff turn into a snake. 
But then God says, well, let me show you how much more powerful I am. There's all these other snakes. So there's, at this point, let's just acknowledge what it is. There's a conversation going on with a bunch of snakes on the floor, right? Nobody's worried about this whole deal. Yeah, I had a dream about snakes last night, and I was worried about it, okay? So verse, verse uh, uh, 12 says this. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. And so there's almost this symbolic, though it literally happened, a symbolic way of God, God going, yes, but, but I'm more powerful. You know, it's interesting. John and I were talking about this between services. Uh, he reminded me that the, the only other time that word swallowed appears in the Bible is when the sea swallows the Egyptians, right? There's some looking forward to what's going on, that God is saying, I am more powerful. And then we get finally to verse 13. Still, even after seeing all this, still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. That's all we're going. That's all where we're going uh, this morning. Now, um, we're going to do something with this text. And for us to do it, we've got a, we got a long way to get there. And I, I obviously don't have a terrible amount of time. For us to be able to get um, to this answer to this question that I want to acknowledge, I first want to talk about a few things. Um, there are moments when we come to Scripture that it is okay that um, something pushes up against our humanness. Okay? There are multiple times when we can come to Scripture and go, wait a minute, what? Like, I, I don't, what, do we, what am I supposed to do with that? And that's okay. That's okay. When that happens enough, it's worth acknowledging. Maybe as a group or whatever it is we go, we see this. And sometimes there's enough questions, not just inside the church as we're reading the Bible, uh, but outside of the church, right? And so it's unfortunate because what we have is a lot of times culture is asking the church the same questions. What do you think about gay marriage? What do you think about gay marriage? What do you think about gay marriage? And then the church responds, well, here's what we believe about gay marriage. And then the culture goes, all you talk about is gay marriage, right? And I'm going, but we were just you were asking. Like, that's all we were. we're trying to respond to this cultural moment. This is true of predestination. This is true of gender roles. There are times where we do have to stop and go, enough questions have been asked for us to go, what do we do with this? How do we process this? And specific to the book of Exodus, a systematic theology, uh, something arises out of Exodus, and it is this term, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Now, I said last week we would cover this sometime in September, and I was going to wait a few weeks, but we're going to go at it today because next week we're going to get at um, this term, and it's going to appear a lot. And I want to make sure we have a, a good understanding of it and hit the ground running before we get there, okay? So here's, here's where I want to start. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart is going to be an important idea, but before we can ever get to Pharaoh, let's acknowledge in our, our story so far where Moses is. Because I think the reality is we hear Pharaoh and we might be confused and frustrated about what we read there. But we tend to um, relate or conform to and believe that we're more like Moses. Moses, in this whole text, this interaction, who's been continued to lack faith, does something that all of us, at least who are believers in the room, can totally relate to. When I chose to follow God, my life got harder, not easier. Okay? Now, maybe people told me all this, and I may have more peace, more joy, and more hope than I had before, but I'm telling you, like, I walked on the scene, and it wasn't like, yes, life is so much easier now, right? And, and just like that, maybe many of you, and maybe it's not just life becoming more difficult, like, now you feel like you're making bricks without straw, just pain in general. Our response is similar to Moses. Yes and amen. Look at it in verse 22. I want you to see this. Here's Moses' response when something like this happened, when pain happens, and in general, when we don't understand God, listen to the response. Oh, Lord, why? Forget for a second everything else Moses says. He actually ends up asking why twice. Our question has not changed. Lord, 
why? Why would you do this? Why would you do it this way? Why? God, I'm obedient. I've been faithful. Why? That's our, that's our question. We so can relate to Moses, but what we miss is God's response in this. As you look at the text, you can see this multiple times in Exodus 6-2, Here's God's response again and again. Moses says, Lord, why? And God says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And so there may be frustration about what's going on. I am the Lord. And that helps us for a moment begin to tackle what's going on with Pharaoh. Here's why. Because we tend to think we relate to Moses. Here's what's crazy. More times than not, more times than we find us relating to Moses, we're actually corresponding in Scripture to Pharaoh more than we are Moses. See that for two reasons. Number one, if you ever read Romans 9, which is a Calvinist paradise, as you read Romans 9, you go through that section of verses and you begin to see um, that God is using Pharaoh far more like an archetype. He's using him like an archetype. Furthermore, this is the third Pharaoh we've seen in the narrative of Scripture. Not one point have we been given a name, a Pharaoh. We've literally, we're just given a, a list of genealogies of the people of Israel. Not one time were we given Pharaoh's name. That's because he's meant to be seen as an archetype. This is exactly what uh, Tim Mackey says from the Bible Project. Listen to this. He says, the author doesn't want us to focus on one single king. Rather, he wants us to see Pharaoh as an archetype of the pattern of human rebellion that began in the garden and culminated in Babylon. The king or sequence of kings is the epitome of human evil. He embodies the strange and tragic turn the human heart can take when one person or society places their own values and well-being above another person or society. Pharaoh is what happens when you redefine good and evil apart from God's wisdom. So he's meant to be, and we are correlated. So, when it comes to this whole conversation of what do we do with Pharaoh, let me, let me read something from Romans 9, that part that I was just telling you about. Exactly how hard scripture goes at when we ask this question, well, why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? What's happening here? Can my heart be hardened? Like if I want Jesus and like my heart's hardened, do I not get him? Like how do we process all of these things? For us to do this though, I need to put something in front of you. We've got to be able to slow down. We can't jump in with both feet, but I only got 20 minutes, okay? And to do this well, we've got to be able to think we can't just be mindless drones who say we follow Christ. We've got to know what we believe and how some of this plays out. So Romans 9 says this to this whole hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Again, as an archetype, it says this in Romans 9, verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human free will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Listen again to verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he ever wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So it doesn't matter where spect- you're at on the spectrum. You got it. All scripture is God breathed and you got to begin to issue the Bible, at least in Romans nine comes out swinging with this. It makes this declaration of hold on. Who are you? God's going to do what he wants. God's going to do what he wants. He hardens who he wills. He lets, he's going to do what he wants. Now, how do we begin to process this? Like, what do we do with this whole deal? So, for us to be able to do this well, 
We have to start at a very foundational level. This is it's going to feel like a theology class, but it is what it is. For us to start at this foundational level, we have to start where the conversation always does need to start, or at least ends up at some point, and it is the, the interaction between human beings and their actions and God's will. Okay? This is the intersection that we have to find her at. What do we do with God willing something and there being human interactions and choosing to do something? Now, let me say this. This is why I hold to Reformed theology. It is in this place, before we go forward, I cannot say this enough. I am okay. We as elders are okay. Redemption Church is okay. And dare I speak for the entire Reformed community, we are okay with there being mystery right here. Do you understand? Some way there is human interaction... And God determining free, like he's going, free will, God determining by his will, there is something going on. Now for us to understand what this is, this is called the doctrine of concurrence. Now there are a million phrases that we can go off of, but I need you to uh, steamroll that into your mind. The doctrine of concurrence. The doctrine of concurrence is the idea that simultaneously God can absolutely will something determining it before the foundations of the world, set it in stone, and you still decide to do it. And both agents can even be held responsible for it in some cases. This is the doctrine of concurrence. Now, we are stuck as a congregation because I was introduced to these doctrines through a guy named Wayne Grudem. And so forever, for my next 120 years of being a pastor here, um, we will use Wayne Grudem because he has been wildly beneficial. Him and R.C. Sproul have been helpful in processing this whole deal. So listen to what Wayne Grudem says on the doctrine of concurrence, okay? He says this, The doctrine of concurrence affirms that God directs and works through the distinctive properties of each created being, so that these things themselves bring about the results that we can see. It is this way, or I'm sorry, in this way, it is possible to affirm that in one sense, events are fully 100% caused by God and fully 100% caused by the creature as well. However, the divine creature, uh, uh, creaturely causes works in different ways. The divine cause, uh, I'm sorry, let me start that again. The divine cause of each event works on the invisible behind the scenes directing cause and therefore could be called the primary cause. That plans and initiates everything that happens. But the created thing brings about actions in ways consistent with the creature's own properties. Ways that can often be described as or by us or by professional scientists who carefully observe the process. He's saying both ends. So let, let, let me explain this. Let's go at this uh, um, as, as hard as we can here, okay? Um, in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11... It says that God accomplishes all things according to the purpose of his will. The word accomplish means brings about. He accomplishes all things. There is nothing outside of the sphere in which God is in control. Everything that is happening, every time I move my hand like this, every time you sit there and adjust your back, your breaths, your blinking, the fly landing, the sounds of the cricket, the speakers working, the building being held up is all sovereignly controlled to every possible molecule that is not outside. It's all controlled by God. There are, all things are controlled or accomplished or brought about by the purpose of his will. And while we are bound as believers to know that is true, we also recognize there are many things that have a secondary cause that we can go, well, wait a minute. So let me give you five examples. First, uh, let's just go creation. Let's start with creation. First, you can look at a plant. You can look at a tree. And you can go, that tree is clearly growing because of the sunlight. It's growing because of water. It's being taken care of. And hear me, you are right. But at the same time, according to Psalm 148, 
and the book of Job, and the way that weather takes place, it's also equally being controlled and brought about by God, the doctrine of concurrence. Let's take animals. Let me read some verses to you uh, with the idea of, of animals. Animals, uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, not one sparrow will fall to the ground without your father's will. So you can say, but wait a minute, we as man decided to put a building there and put a piece of glass there, and that bird's dumb, and it flew into a glass and broke its neck. And, and you would go, you're right. You're absolutely right. That's all true. But I'm telling you at the same time, what scripture binds us to, as much as that is true, we participated in the killing of that sparrow, God was over it. God was the primary cause. But it's not just inanimate pieces of nature. It's not just animals. This is also true of random things. Listen to this uh, in Proverbs 16:33. The lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is holy from the Lord. The lot is like dice, right? So I'm watching Army Michigan uh, yesterday, and I, they go into overtime, and the ref flips the coin. And the ref decides to use a certain amount of inertia and muscles to flip that coin. The coin goes up. There's a certain amount of wind that takes that coin, and the coin lands, and it lands in Michigan's favor, right? As much as we need to say in this moment, yes and amen, that the, the ref could have used more muscle. He could have used less muscle. There could have been more wind. There could have been less wind. All those things play a part. Yes and amen. It was God who determined Michigan would get the football, unfortunately, because I wanted Army to win. Okay? So, so, so my point is that this is just true. And to Grudem's point, the doctrine of concurrence affirms this is 100% of God and 100% of man. It's real. We can see it. Meteorologists can study it. We can, botanists can see it. They can explain it. That's all real. But both are true. And hear me, this is where I'm okay with living in mystery. This is where we have to be okay with mystery, right? This is the classic Deuteronomy 29, 29. These mysterious things belong to the Lord. So we don't know how this works out, but it is what it is. Now, usually this is where we have to take a breath because there's two more ways that we need to understand this doctrine. It's not just trees, it's not just animals, and it's not just coins. He actually also attributes himself to being over all things in the areas of the affairs of nations. Listen to this, Job 12, 23. God makes nations great, God destroys them, God enlarges nations, and God leads them away. Listen to Psalm twenty-two, twenty-eight. Dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. It was God deciding that Rome would rise and Rome would fall. It is God deciding to put America where America is. It is God deciding the human affairs and international things. It is God, it is God, it is God. He is over all these things. Yes and amen. You went and you voted. You voted for Hillary, you voted for Trump, you voted for a third party, you voted. Very real choice, and it is very much in play, but ultimately, God wants Trump to be president. I don't, and, like, and I have my issues, believe me, right? I'm like Moses, like, why, okay? But it is, it is, it is. But it's not just large human affairs. This is the, the last leap, number five. This is the hardest part for us to go. God is sovereignly over us. He's sovereignly over us. Now beat your American chest and say, I have free will. I demand my destiny. Let's see what scripture has to say. Matthew chapter six. It's interesting. In Matthew chapter six, Jesus in an imperative form, meaning he commands us. Jesus commands us to pray this prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Now you got up, you went to work, you did the work, you got paid, You took the money, you went to the store, you bought the food, you brought it home, you cooked the food, you put it on the plate, you ate it, but God gave you the dinner. 
God gave it to you. Nowhere, no commentator anywhere has ever said, Jesus tells you to pray, give us this day our daily bread, and then just expects you in this moment to go, well, then that's fine. Don't do anything. He'll provide it from the sky. Matter of fact, later on, he uses the apostle Paul to say, he who doesn't work doesn't eat. So God in this moment says, listen, I provide, ask me, yes, work, yes, earn, yes, get. That's my gift to you. God is sovereignly over in the doctrine of concurrence, both you going to work, earning that food, and God providing it for you. But we're not done. Listen to Psalm, uh, Psalms 139.16. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Did you hear what that just said? I got like 45 verses that I can share. So we're just kind of picking some of these things, but I need you to hear that one. Before you were born, God numbered your days. And he doubles down on this. Listen to this. He doubles down on this in Job 14.5. Man's days are determined, and the number of his months is with you. To the month, right? And you have appointed his boundaries so that he cannot pass. So ain't nobody, listen, you choose to treat your body right. You either eat well, don't eat well. Let's say you chose to pick up smoke and 10 packs of cigarettes a day, and you just smoke yourself to death, Okay. As much as that may be true, God has determined your days. He's not going, wait, wait, you're not supposed to go. That's not happening. He has set your days. You can't outlive the days in which he sets. This is him sovereignly over it. This is what Proverbs acknowledges over and over. I mean, Eastern culture gets this way easier than Western culture. Listen to this, Proverbs uh, 20, 24. A man's steps are ordered by the Lord. He orders our steps. Proverbs 16, 9. A man's mind plans his way. Man decides it but the Lord directs his steps. Doctrine of concurrence. This is very real, and I need you to see how much this is in Scripture because as we beat our chest and we go, what about free will? I get it. There are hundreds of conversations in different ways that we can go. As a matter of fact, when we were in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, we stopped uh, uh, over the course of a month, and I did a five-week class, two hours each, where about 200 of you came, and we talked about every nook and cranny we can talk about when it comes to God's sovereignty, predestination, all this stuff. We have it recorded if you want it, just let me know. But my point is this, I need you to see the doctrine of concurrence. Now, it's not just the doctrine of concurrence is done in all these different areas. I want to show you specific things so we can get back to Pharaoh. Now, there, by my, there might be more, but the way that I record it as a, looking through Scripture, there are 18 times in Scripture where God does something, and that exact same thing is held, a, a man or a person is held accountable for that same thing. 18 times. But let me just share four of them with you, okay? The first one is the guy that I just quoted, Job. Uh, if, you're, if you're not familiar with the story of Job, uh, Satan wants to do all these things to Job. God allows Satan to take, take place. And so we have, um, we have the uh, Sabaeans coming in and they thrash uh, uh, all of Job's livestock and kill his family. A whirlwind comes in, this tornado comes in, takes out his house and kills other people. And when it's all said and done, you're going, we have very real things. We can see people came in and murdered his family. We can say weather came in and destroyed his house. We can see that. But Job's declaration is this. Listen to Job chapter 1. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. From Job's perspective, yes. But Job, a whirlwind. I know a whirlwind. But, but, but the Sabians, yeah, I know. But it's the Lord. It's the Lord. You can even as the reader reading the narrative go, but actually it's Satan. Job is, it's the Lord. The Lord's over this. 
The Lord's over this. That, that's not it. We were in uh, um, the book of Jonah a few months ago. And if you remember in chapter 1, there was a very specific spot where um, Jonah is on the boat, right? And the, the sailors are saying, what should we do, Jonah? He goes, cast me overboard. And uh, the sailors pick up Jonah, and it says they throw him overboard. Now, it's weird because he could have just jumped overboard. But very specifically, it says that they threw him overboard. Well, he ends up being swallowed by a fish. And inside the fish, here's Jonah's declaration. Even though the sailors threw Jonah overboard, here's uh, uh, Jonah's declaration talking to God in the middle of this prayer, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Jonah recognizes the doctrine of concurrence. Even though this took place, I know you did it. And we see that how we got to the book of Exodus is probably the most well-known of all these stories. Joseph, who sold by his brothers into slavery, he goes through all this crazy deal, rises up into Egypt. Here he is, eventually meets back with his brothers. And this is Joseph's declaration. In the way, same way you sold me into slavery. You sold me to slavery. I had to go through all this bad stuff. You meant this. This is very specific language. You meant this for evil. Everything you did, you meant it for good, for evil. But hear what the Bible doesn't say. He in this moment doesn't say, but God turned it for good. You meant it for evil, but God turned it for good. He does not say that. He says, you meant it for evil and God meant it for good. He's simultaneously putting the doctrine of concurrence. You meant it for evil and the same exact thing, God meant it for good. Now, what becomes difficult is we begin to get into evil, right? Like this whole evil act of like, well then, okay, so Hitler, abortion, Murder, rape, molestation. And so um, there's a lot. There's probably 10 of the 18 that I found that are difficult like this. And, um, and these conversations are always so hard, just acknowledging how difficult they are. So let me go to the worst one possible. Let me go to the most evil, wicked act ever performed on this earth. And let me show you how scripture even still affirms that God was over this. The most wicked act ever performed more than anything that we can try to lay out is when an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God takes on flesh to save his people and his people murder him. Even this, in the crucifixion of Jesus, according to both Acts 2 and Acts 4, declares, and I quote, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He's talking to Jews there. Do you hear that? the definite plan of God, yet you did it. But he's not done. Acts 4, verse 27. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your, holy, uh, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed. Listen, four people are acknowledged here. Herod, Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Did you hear that? Four people are part of crucifying Jesus. And yet, according to, and I quote, do whatever your hand, God, God's hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is the doctrine of concurrence. So why would I take like an hour and a half to explain the doctrine of concurrence the way that I did? Because for us to begin to get our mind around what's going on with Pharaoh, I would contend that's what's happening with his heart. The doctrine of concurrence help us, helps us get our mind around this. And I get it. There's a ton of questions. First cause, second cause, all these things. But for now, let's just see, uh, as we kind of go back to, to, to Pharaoh, go back to the text here, what's going on and how we're going to see this play out a lot. You're going to see the hardening of Pharaoh's ha- heart happen a lot 
a lot in the book of Exodus. So listen to this. I want to read something to you from Proverbs 21.1. Okay, it says this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. So just from the jump, Pharaoh is a king over the land, and God says, listen, I can make the water go this way or this way. I determine where the king's heart goes. That's the Lord's declaration. Now, for us to see the hardening of Pharaoh's heart with the, 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 the backing of the doctrine of concurrence, let, let's read some things. Let's try to see what's happening and what we're going to be introduced to over the next couple of weeks, okay? Let me read something to, uh, to you from a guy named Walt Kaiser. It says this, In all, there are ten places where the hardening of Pharaoh is ascribed to God. So there are 10 places in Exodus, well, all of the Bible, where the hardening of uh, Pharaoh's heart is ascribed to God. 10 places. And he gives the, the, the references there. But it must be stated just as firmly that Pharaoh hardened his own heart in another 10 passages. So there are 10 passages affirmed to God hardening uh, Pharaoh's heart, but there are also another 10 passages where Pharaoh hardens his own heart. You can already hear the doctrine of concurrence. Thus the hardening was as much Pharaoh's own act as it was the work of God. Even more significant is the fact that Pharaoh alone was the agent of his hardening in the first five plagues. Not until the sixth plague was it stated that God actually moved in and hardened Pharaoh's heart. Uh, that's in uh, nine twelve, As he had warned Moses in Midian that he would, uh, what, as he would have to do. So, so hear me, listen, like there's so much maybe going on in you right now that's going like, but God, he did that. He, and I get it, but the doctrine of concurrence forces you. It forces you to go, I read in scripture that God is sovereignly over all things and he accomplishes all things to his will. And yet we'll be held accountable in these things. And again, I say to you, I'm okay with that mystery. We've got to live there. Because what we're going to find out, here's the order. Listen to the plagues that we're going to find out next week. Here it is. The, the plague of the frogs says this, uh, um, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Of gnats, Pharaoh's heart was hard. Of flies, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Of the livestock dying, Pharaoh's heart was hard. Of boils, the Lord hardened uh, Pharaoh's heart. Of hail, uh, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Of locusts, God announces that he has hardened Pharaoh's heart. In darkness, God, Pharaoh, uh, gar, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In the death of the firstborn, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And what's even more difficult about this and what we can't unpack in the next couple of weeks is there's ambiguity to the Hebrew here. Matter of fact, if you have an NIV, it's hard to tell who's hardening the heart and who's not. And I think that's intentional. That's the doctrine of concurrence. Now hear me, as a, as a teacher, as a pastor, this is as far as I can go with you. Because usually what we do is we want to add human reasoning. We go, but I see this or why or whatever. And, and as we do that, that's as far as I can go. There is a mystery to this that we don't know. We don't have answers to. But what I find as bonkers about the whole thing is in a conversation about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and how much, how many questions we have around it. Every time I have this conversation about human free will and God predestining and all these different things, we end right back up where Moses was. It, it, very rarely we go through it and we talk about the who, we talk about the what, we talk about the where, we talk about the how, but inevitably, always, we end back up where Moses left. As a matter of fact, when I was doing the five-week classes and talking about all this, I said, listen, at some point, I don't have the answer to this question. So I said, it's okay. You were able to text in, and people still ask the same question, and it's this. Why? Like Moses in verse 22, we go, Lord, why? Why? Why would you do it this way? Why? Why? And, and listen, I graciously want to put in front of you, I think the Lord's response to Moses is the same response to us now. You are fragile. 
You are limited. You will be here for a short period of time, but I am the Lord. I am the Lord. You're not the Lord. I am the Lord. And I can't go where some of you guys want to go. Because some of you want to go, but if he's all powerful and he's all good, and I want to go, listen, if God is all powerful and he's all good and he's all knowing, then most likely he's going to do something that all of us don't understand. That's just the reality. And so I sit in that tension and I can't begin to to implicate human reason. And I think you need to be okay with, we don't know what's going on. Yes, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Yes, God hardened uh, uh, Pharaoh's heart. But the reality is that's because the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And as God puts himself on display, Pharaoh doesn't like it. He wants to be in power. And so Pharaoh's heart grows hard. Not one moment in all of this passage is Pharaoh going to Moses and going, but Moses, I want to believe. I really do. I want to get there, but my heart's hard. It just won't get there. The reason I fell in love with reform doctrine and processing this whole thing is everyone gets what they want. Nobody's in hell right now going, I just really want Jesus, but he doesn't want me. Everybody gets what they want. Pharaoh chooses for his heart to be hard. And simultaneously, God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. And for us to struggle with God saying, I am the Lord, you are not. Trust me tells us something, doesn't it? It tells us ultimately this story isn't about Moses. It's not about Pharaoh. And it's not about you and I. God reminds us that the story of Exodus and scripture for that matter is about him. And he's drawing you to go, hey, look, 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 listen, listen. See how I care for my people? See how I care for the oppressed? See how I hate the oppressor? See how I fight against injustice? Do you see that? Look at me. You're asking why, but God is calling you to ask the who. He wants you to direct your attention. Quit spending all the, the time and all, all, all the fervor and all the emotion on why, why, why. It's me. In love, he graciously says, Trust me, like a, like a child, trust me. I know you don't have the answers. I know you've got a ton of questions, but his call in the book of Exodus is to focus on him and it's for our own good. That's the best I can do. I hope that helps. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks so much for who you are. <clears throat> and the reality is there's, uh, a lot left on the table here. And, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe we're walking away with more questions than we are answers, but, um, I pray spirit that we would, um, in all of that press nearer and nearer to you, we would see the text for what it is that you're calling us to, um, see you as, as like the main character. You're the one pushing Moses along. You're the one who show yourself big to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh as an archetype, or maybe even not, let's say we're wrong on the whole thing. The reality is, it's clear that you are doing something inside of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is doing something. It's clear that you're in control of this whole deal. You've continued to call your shots. Uh, you've continued to, to move the story along. And so we see you're in charge. And that's not just true thousands of years ago. That's true today. Let our hearts see that. Let us um, yes, ask the big questions of why, but not stay there, not focus there. Ask better questions about who you are. Let us want to know you more. You desire to reveal yourself to us, and we're grateful for that. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.